This morning's scripture reading is found in the book of Acts, chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 37 through 47. For those of you uh, using the blue Bibles in front of you, that will be on beginning on page 910 and going to page 911. And this is the reading of God's Word. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his words were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belonging and, and distributing them the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The Word of God. Let me pray for us again as we uh, come to God's Word together. Father, we ask that you would draw near to us now as we gather around your Word. We need the help of your Spirit to understand it rightly and to see how it applies to our lives, to our hearts, to our various needs, to our communities, to our neighborhoods, to our workplaces. And so we ask that you would open our eyes to those ways. But Lord, we pray most of all that you would enable us to see Jesus this morning, that the work of your Spirit would be to point away from himself and to the Son of God, our Savior and Lord, and we pray in his name. Amen. I went to an elementary school uh, that had a lot of unique things about it. Uh, it was a Montessori school, so we didn't have grades. Um, so Jeanette calls it the school with no grades. And uh, it was in this, uh, it was in a house, actually. There are all kinds of pretty incredible stories about this, and I'd be happy to tell them at some point. Uh, but one of the things about this school is that it was ac across the street from a creek. And if you know anything about Montessori education, they want to have uh, like real hands-on kind of stuff. So we would go across the street to this creek and have these, um, have science-related sorts of projects, but it also, we had a lot of just waiting and kind of having fun and playing in the water. So one afternoon while we were there, my friends came up with this idea of forming the Snake Hunters Club, okay? The main problem with this is that I am terrified of snakes, okay? I was not the kid who would pet the snakes and pick them up and show them around and say, it's not even poisonous, it's okay. 
Um, I didn't have any of that. And I get this feeling in my chest, even today, whenever I see a snake that's not in a cage. So I'm in a bad place here. When I go running on Trinity Trail, if I see one, then, then I, I'm, I'm paralyzed for the next 10 minutes. I can't get it out of my head. It's terrible. So this snake hunters club is forming, and I'm torn because as an eight-year-old boy, you got to be in the club, right? Uh, but at the same time, I'm scared to death of these snakes. But the last thing I want to do is be left out of this group. So the leader, Matt Irwin, declares the one condition for admission into this club, which was, you cannot be afraid of snakes. <laughs> and so he goes around the circle of four or five of us and says, are you afraid of snakes? No. Are you afraid of snakes? No. Are you afraid of snakes? No. He comes to me. Are you afraid of snakes? No, nope, not at all. Not afraid in the least. And so the hunt begins, and I spend the rest of the afternoon standing back behind my friends as they're pulling up these rocks and looking under this, just hoping we don't find any snakes. And thankfully, we didn't that day. Okay, what happened in that moment? A couple things. My fears were exposed. The obvious fear of snakes was exposed in a pretty significant way. But even more than that, my fear of what people think of me became obvious and apparent in that I was willing to lie to my friends about this fear of snakes in order to belong. So I want to be fake. I want to do whatever I can to be a part of this group because I'm so afraid of getting left out and having to acknowledge before my eight-year-old friends that, yes, I am, in fact, afraid of snakes. Do you resonate with that? Maybe not fear of snakes, but fear of other people. A fear of what they think about you. I think that fear can either manifest itself in the way it did with me, where you're willing to compromise who you are, try and be somebody you're not, cover up a lot of stuff in order to belong. Or another response that, that can happen from this fear and result from it is that we avoid people rather than moving towards them. Another quick example of this. I was at our denomination's General Assembly this last week in Houston, and I was up, uh, this was the first night, Tuesday night, and a friend and I were walking around trying to find a place to sit. And he leans over to me and he says, this is like junior high all over again. This is like a big middle school cafeteria of pastors because you're kind of looking and thinking, who can I sit with? Like, is he going to be, a, can I sit here? Is there a cool table? If there is, can I sit there? Can I, how's this going to work for me to sit? And so in the midst of these 1,200 uh, teaching and ruling elders, there's just kind of insecurity oozing. Uh, and you see it all over the place. And the natural response there is to withdraw, to avoid. And what does that look like? It looks like this right here. I just got, I got a lot going on my phone, so I'm not going to enter into conversations with people. We avoid people because we're scared to death. And that fear undercuts the community of the church that is created by the Holy Spirit and that is intended as a blessing for us from God Himself. Fear is this barrier that can keep us from moving toward God, it keeps us from moving toward each other, and it keeps us from moving toward our neighbors as well. 
And what I want us to see this morning is that the Holy Spirit actually removes these barriers of fear. Okay? Let me remind us where we are. We're celebrating the season of Pentecost, which is the the celebration of the outpouring of God's Spirit on the church. And what, what we're looking at is Acts 2, and we'll finish that this morning. But what I want you to see is the connection between the Holy Spirit and the community of the church. A lot of times when we talk about the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit, because of Galatians 5, we think of it as pretty individual. Uh, Love, joy, peace, patience, all these things are going to be manifested in us as individuals. But the fruit of the Spirit in this passage is this community of the church, this community of believers together. So here's what we'll look at. I want you to see that the Spirit actually creates and calls us into a community that moves towards God, that moves towards one another in fellowship and generosity, and moves towards our neighbors in mission. And those are our three points. The Spirit creates a community, moves towards God in repentance and worship, towards each other in fellowship and generosity, and towards our neighbors in mission. Okay? So first, the Spirit creates a community that moves towards God in repentance and worship. You see first this section on repentance, mainly in verses 37 through 41. I'm not going to get into all the details of this passage. I know Darwin spent a little bit of time talking about 37 through 41 last week. Uh, This really serves as a transitional passage. It is the response to Peter's sermon, which is why Darwin dealt with it last week. But it's also sort of the beginning of this passage on fellowship. And the result, you respond in this way to the Spirit, and here's the community that's then created based on that response and the work of the Spirit. So here's what's happening, and what I want us to see and focus on, is that what Peter is calling them to is to repent and be rescued. He's just finished saying to these people, you have killed the Messiah. You have murdered the Messiah. This long-hoped-for Messiah was killed at your hands. God then raised him from the dead. He ascended to God's right hand. And now, in fulfillment of that promise in Joel 2, this same Savior has poured out His Spirit on the church. And the response is in verse 37. Take a look. They hear this, and Luke tells us, they are cut to the heart. They are undone by what they have just heard. They realize that they're guilty, and it's not in some kind of abstract way either. They are guilty of murdering the Son of God. That's what they're feeling right now. They're undone by it, and they are cut to the heart. They are guilty of the body and blood of Christ. And so verse 37, they ask, Brothers, what shall we do? And look at Peter's answer. He says three things. He says, repent. Just to say, turn from your sin, believe the gospel, and be baptized. Now, I want to focus on repentance in particular here. What is it? Literally, what this means is a change of mind. Okay? Uh, It's a change of mind, but it involves more than that. You are turning from your sin, going down a path from, going towards sin, but you turn from that path and now are turned back towards God. It's a complete and radical reorientation of your life. But mixed in here is this sense of sorrow as well. And that's obvious in their words, that that they recognize what they've done and there's a sense of sorrow. And so Peter calls them 
to turn from their sin and turn to God. Now, why is this important for us to see? It's important for a number of reasons, but one is this. Turning to God when you have been convicted deeply of your sin is not our natural response. When you feel the weight of your sin, going to God with that and acknowledging it might actually feel like the last thing that you want to do. When you have a deep sense of that guilt and shame, the tendency is not to turn to God, it's to hide instead. Like a child that is trying to hide from his parents out of fear because he's no, he knows he's caught. And he runs to the closet to hide. That's our natural tendency when it comes to our sins being exposed. But what Peter says here is something different. Why do we do this? Why do we run from God in that way? I think, one reason at least, is that we fear God. And some of us have experienced that fear in greater ways than others. But this is actually what sin does to us. It is sin wants us to hide. Here's a great quote from Bonhoeffer that gets at this. He says, Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. Sin wants to get you alone. The last thing that sin wants is for you to turn to God. And you feel that. What does Peter say? Peter says, don't do it. What he says is turn to God rather than away. Don't run from Him with your sin. Turn to Him. Why? Because that is the place where the grace of Jesus is found. That's the place where, as he says, you receive the forgiveness for those sins. That's the place where you'll be rescued, where you'll be saved from this crooked generation, he says. And it's there, as you turn to God rather than away from Him, that the love and grace of Jesus given to us by the Spirit will cast out those fears. Where you are reassured that you don't have to fear this God. That this God invites you in grace to Himself. And so the question to ask yourself this morning as you look at this passage, are you hiding? Are you hiding this morning? Are you riddled with guilt over some sin that you think is too great for God? Something that you are so deeply ashamed of that you don't want to acknowledge and you're scared to death of what would happen if God actually saw that, if you acknowledged it to Him. And so we act as though He doesn't see it. We run from Him. That's a very real temptation. If that's you this morning, you need to understand the situation that the original hearers were in. These are people who are guilty of literally crucifying the Savior. Now, we share in that in some way as well. But it's those people who have literally murdered Jesus who are now receiving this gift of forgiveness from the very one that they crucified. Peter invites you into that grace this morning. He invites you into that mercy and out of hiding. He calls us to turn to Him. And that same forgiveness that was theirs is now ours through the very same Spirit. And so first, in 1 John, John can say, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. This is the work of the Spirit. It moves us towards God in repentance rather than away. But he also says, 
it flows right into worship here as well, that the Spirit moves us toward God in worship as well. Again, so much we could say here, but the immediate result of this sense of conviction and turning to God in repentance is worship. The grace of the one they crucified is now this one that they have to worship as well. Look at verse 42 and 43. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Verse 43, an awe or a reverent fear, a sense of worship came upon every soul. And you see that in verse 46 as well, that they are praising God. First notice this, devoted. They are devoted to these things. And we don't see this in the translation, but the tense of this verb is important here. Because what he's saying is that there's an ongoing sense to the tense of this verb. These are things that were regular, ongoing, and habitual practices of the church. And and all these verbs in 42 through 47 share this tense, and they're different from the section before. So Luke wants us to see that these are regular patterns of worship. This is what it looks like to be the Spirit-formed community. And he says they devoted themselves to a few things here. One... The apostles' teaching. What they wanted and needed was to know and learn all that it meant to be a part of this Spirit-formed, Spirit-filled community. And the place that they were going to go for that was to the apostles. These were those who were speaking the Word of God on behalf of Jesus. And that's actually why in verse 43, it speaks of them doing these wonders and signs. And Luke is very specific to say that this was through the apostles. Because these would have been the ways in which the wonders and signs would have testified to the legitimacy of their words. This was the same pattern for Jesus in His ministry. And so what they want is to know more of what it means to be this community. He says that there was fellowship. And we'll look at that in the, in the second point. He says there was the breaking of the bread. They devoted themselves to this. There's some question here as to whether this is just a meal that's being discussed or if it's actually a, some kind of precursor to the Lord's Supper. And I think it's actually a precursor to the Lord's Supper, a few reasons why. Uh, one is that if you remember, uh, this is the second part of Luke's history. He wrote the Gospel of Luke and now he continues with this letter, this account to Theophilus of Acts. And so, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke has written about the Last Supper. So he sees the significance of Jesus being present in this meal. He goes on to say in Luke 24, if you'll remember, after Jesus has been raised from the dead, he's on the road to Emmaus, and he's with these two. They don't recognize him until what? Until the breaking of the bread. Same phrase used here, okay? So something significant about Jesus being present in this meal in a unique way. And then finally, this comes in the context of worship. So Jesus, uh, Jesus is present in this meal in a special way, and we're moved towards worship in and through this breaking of the bread. Finally, prayers. Uh, and again, think of this as an ongoing pattern of prayer. Okay, why does that matter? Why does it matter that worship here is an emphasis for Luke and the result of this Spirit-formed community. Because in the context of worship, the Spirit draws us to Jesus. This is one of the ways in which even right now we are moved toward God rather than away from Him. And there are times, this could be you this morning, 
where you do feel so overwhelmed by a particular sin that you're dealing with, something that is deep-rooted, that is on the level of your desires, that feels like a part of who you are, and to think of living apart from it feels impossible, where you think that the last thing you want to do is go to worship. The last thing you want to do is enter into this hour and a half on a Sunday morning. What I want to say, if that's you, is that that is the exact moment when you need to flee to God in worship. Because these are the ways that the Spirit overcomes those fears and casts them out. When you are reassured of the love of God for you in Christ, those things that become so easy to forget, the lies that we so easily believe. And so you come to this place where you hear of the grace of God and are reassured of it. And then you're equipped to serve in the world, all in this context of worship. This is what's happening by the work of the Spirit here. So, it's in and through this repentance and then worship that the Spirit moves us towards God and not away from Him. Secondly, the Spirit creates a community that moves us towards each other in fellowship and generosity. You see this in a few places. First, fellowship. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to fellowship. That's the Greek word koinonia that will be familiar to some of you. And what's mentioned here is that being a hallmark of this Spirit-formed community. This, this is a, a huge, this is almost the epitome of what it would mean to gather around Jesus, is that we would have this fellowship. And listen to how it's described in verse 44. It says, they were together. Specifically mentions that they were together. Verse 46, they're in each other's homes. There's a deep, intimate fellowship that's happening here. And that's what this koinonia is all about. There's a rich sharing in life together, a communion with one another that spills into the whole of their life together as a congregation. Uh, and, and throughout Luke's gospel, and then actually in, his, in the book of Acts, fellowship is a huge deal. One commentator points out that of all the elements that are mentioned, because uh, there's another instance of a summary description of the church like this in Acts 4, and in other places as well, fellowship is mentioned more than anything else. More than teaching, more than their, their uh, outward-facing ministry to the world around them. Fellowship is Luke's hallmark over and over again. It's mentioned more than anything else. And that makes sense. Because what Jesus came to do is a work of reconciliation. Now, we often think of that uh, in terms of reconciliation to God, which of course is primary. Uh, sin separated us from God. Jesus' work reconciles us to God. But sin also has torn apart the human relationships that should be there. It's ripped those relationships apart. And part of what Jesus' work is, is to come to reconcile and bring together these people that have been torn apart. Uh, Darwin mentioned this a couple weeks ago, uh, that the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 is this pronouncement of a curse on God's people, on the people of the world at the time, uh, for trying to build this tower up, uh, make a name for themselves, is what the text says. And so the judgment and curse placed upon them by God is that they would be dispersed and that they would be, their languages would be confused. Well, Acts 2 at Pentecost is now an undoing of that curse in a sense. It's God's Spirit being poured out so that now these languages are understood by people who didn't speak them. 
There are people then bringing together this multinational, worldwide community of people that are now being gathered and reconciled by the Spirit's work. So this makes sense, right? That this is a huge work of what God is doing. And so what the Spirit does, and we see this in this passage, is draw us into this life-giving, life-sharing community of fellowship. Um, I was in Indiana, Indianapolis, last weekend, doing a wedding for two former students. And so we had seen some of them. We were there for a wedding three weeks before that, lots of weddings. And um, which is one of the great things about being a campus minister is that you get to see that. It's kind of a fun capstone. Um, and so the question that we got over and over again was, how's Fort Worth? How's Fort Worth? Are you guys liking it? You liking Fort Worth? Over and over. And I want to tell you all what a privilege and a joy it was to be able to say how much we love being here and being a part of this community. How much we love you all, how much we love being loved by you all. And how much that, that, that we are grateful for the way that the Spirit is at work in us, bringing about this sense of fellowship and family together. It's really interesting um, talking to people, uh, especially when I came back last year, um, talking about what, how people came here or what they, what they love about our church. Person after person would talk about how it feels like family. And so I, I want to encourage you all in that way. That, like that, that is, that we, there's a sense of this right now, of the Spirit's work in us. And you should be encouraged by that. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing that we should celebrate and rejoice in. But at the same time, obviously this is not a perfect community and living into that kind of shared life together can be unbelievably frightening. It can be so, so scary. And this is some of what Darwin mentioned in the Confession of Sin. It's scary because actually sharing your life together, spending enough time together to where you would call a person your family member, means that you're going to show some of the not-so-pretty parts about yourself as well. All the things that you try and hide and that are easy to keep at arm's length if you don't really know people. But when you enter into real relationships with people, they start to see how you get angry and yell at your kids. They start to see the ways that you ignore your neighbors. They start to see the way that we look at things on the internet that we shouldn't and the way that we use alcohol to numb ourselves from the stress of life. They see the way that we deal with our loneliness in unhealthy ways. How do we overcome that fear, which we've all experienced or maybe are experiencing in some way? By remembering two things. One is this. Jesus knows and sees all of those things about you. And He still moves towards you in love. That's why He died on the cross. That's why He continues to call you to Himself. That's why He continues to assure you of His love so that you would know that your security and your status are certain. They rest in Jesus alone. And that is a beautiful thing that the Holy Spirit, as Paul says in Romans 5, actually convinces us of this love of God. The love of God is poured into our hearts by this same Spirit. So that's one thing. The second is to know that Jesus, by His Spirit, intends these relationships for your good. 
We want this church to be the sort of place where you can say, I have been having two to three drinks every night when I get home from work because I'm afraid to actually interact with my kids. We want this church to be a place where you can say, I stay up too late to get on the internet after my family goes to bed and I look at things I shouldn't. We want this church to be a safe place for you to acknowledge that you have a deep-seated resentment of somebody else. The beautiful thing about this is that the Spirit works in and through relationships so that we can, as Bonhoeffer says, the sin shuns the light, but he calls us by the gospel to come out of hiding, to acknowledge these things to God and to one another, and to recognize that being in community with people is exactly the place to be for those struggles. This is exactly where we need to bring these things out. There's a couple in our church who have said that small groups saved their marriage. Small groups saved their marriage. I know small groups can be awkward and they're not all fantastic all the time. But to have that intentionality to say, we're going to try and create some sort of space where we can get to know one another and be honest, has resulted in a marriage being saved. This is what the Spirit does in community. This is what we're called to. And there's this element of generosity as well, verses 44 and 45. They had all things in common, it says, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Okay, it's not a call to communism. Everybody thinks that. Seriously, every commentator addresses this. Um, Notice that it's voluntary. It's according to those in need. Uh, notice also that verse 46 says that they continue to break bread in their homes. Okay? Their homes. Private property. Right? Um, so it's not a call to communism. But, this is important, that's not an excuse to get us off the hook here either. Well, thankfully, we can ignore that because there, it's not communism or something. No. Uh, The question is, how do we respond to people within our midst who have financial needs? The picture of the love and care that the Spirit brings about in us is one that has financial and material implications. And it's beautiful in that way because it shows that those are the things that kind of expose our hearts. So what what do you do when you see somebody in need, when you know somebody is suffering? Spirit calls us to be involved in each other's lives in that way. And that kind of fellowship, that kind of community is contagious. This is thirdly and finally here. The Spirit creates a community that moves towards our neighbors in mission. You see this in verse 41, uh, just from Peter's speech, from his uh, sermon here, from his speaking. 3,000 were added that very day. And then look at verse 46. uh, Actually, sorry, verse 47, the beginning here, it says they were having favor with all people. That could be having favor toward all people. It's, it could be translated either way there. But what, what's important to see is that in either case, there was an outward-facing element to this community. Whether it was favor with people in terms of their rep- reputation or favor towards people, and then that was their disposition to those around them. And then the end of this passage, verse 47. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There is something beautiful and compelling that is happening in this community of people, and so people are drawn to it. That's what's happening. 
All of us long for that kind of reconciled community. Whether you're here this morning just exploring Christianity or whether you've been a Christian your whole life, there is something deeply creational within you that longs for those sorts of deep relationships. And what has happened here is that the Spirit has brought about this worship of God, this love of one another in such a way that people see that and go, I want that. I want to be a part of that. And it gets at that longing that we all have, this craving for community that the Spirit alone can create. Here's a quote from Jamie Smith on this. In a broken, fragmented world, the church is called to be the first fruits of a new creation by embodying a reconciled community. We embody this reconciliation that Jesus is bringing about. And I hope what that does is push back against the fears that we have of moving towards our neighbors in love. There are all kinds of fears. We don't have to get into them now. But what I want you to see is that this picture of ministry in this passage is of a community that worships God, that loves and cares for its own within. And people see that and are drawn to it. When God's people devote themselves to these very ordinary things of of loving God and loving people, both in the church and outside the church, the community grows. I've given this quote before, but I think it's great from Christine Pohl. The best testimony to the truth of the gospel is the quality of our life together. Something so beautiful and contagious about a community that has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus. And that's what's happening here. Notice, though, who is bringing the growth. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Verse 39. Verse 47. The Lord added to their number. Did they do it by some sort of manipulative tactic? No. Did they do it by putting forward some sort of false picture of what the good life is? No. The Lord is the one who, through these ordinary means, is drawing people in. And by the power of the Spirit, that happens. And that is good news for us as well. We can be confident that this is how God works. So this community that's pictured here in this passage is one that is formed by the Spirit. It's the original uh, community formed by the Spirit. It's a community that moves towards God in repentance and worship. It moves towards each other in the sense of fellowship and generosity, and it moves out into the world to our neighbors in mission. This same spirit that brought this about in Acts 2 is right here, right now. It's the same spirit that is indwelling us as a body. And so there's all kinds of hope for us to actually become something like this. This is so hopeful in that way. Romans 8.15 says this about our fears that we might still have. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit sets us free from these fears and then creates this reality among us. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. He creates it and calls us into it. Let me pray for us that God would do that in our midst.
Father, we pray that you would cast out our fears and anxieties that come with thinking of what it would look like to move toward you, toward each other, and toward our world. We thank you that you promised to do this by your Spirit and that it is your work in us. We pray that you would make us a community that is characterized by these things. Your Spirit indwells us. You can do this, you will do this, and we look to you in hope and plead with you that you would. We pray this all, that your glory and your name would be known uh, throughout our neighborhoods, throughout our city, throughout our world. In Christ's name, amen.